um, in, in Genesis. And when this sermon series was announced, my first response was like, awesome, who's going to do chapter 38? And so I looked at the list. We had like a plan of who was going to do which parts of the story, or how the, the story was going to be um, sectioned out, and 38 was left out. And the reason why 38 is left out, you'll soon, if you don't know what I'm referencing right away, you'll know soon enough, and you'll go, oh, I know why that wasn't going to be preached on. 37 is where it starts. Yes. Uh, so my response immediately was like, Judah and Tamar? That's, I, wanted to, I want to preach that sermon. I've never heard that sermon before in my life, and, uh, and I want to preach it. I think it's going to preach itself. So here I am. Um, I see chapter 38 in Genesis. I'm, I'm, we're going to look at it, like what is it and how does Judas' place fit in the story. But I'm going to look at it as a metaphor because I think that we all have chapter 38s in our life and we edit those chapters. We do not include those chapters in the rendering of our story with God because they're shameful. But as we'll see in this Joseph story, you don't have the end of the story without what happened, what transpired in, in the shame of 38 and then actually Judah's ability to turn it around, and he turned it around because Tamar helped him, and she helped him in an unusual way, which we'll see. Uh, do we have scriptures? Let's start with Matthew uh, to give ourselves uh, context here. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We'll stop there. So they're like in chapter 3, or I mean verse 3 here, right at the top here, both are named. And so then if we look at, oh, okay, well let's go back in the story and see where does that come up earlier? It comes up in chapter 38 of Genesis. So what we're going to do is look, we've been telling the story, and I'll retell parts of the story. It's a good story, so it's kind of worth just reflecting again. Uh, how Judah figures in, and a before version of Judah, and then there's an after version of Judah. And the before version of Judah is consequential to the story, uh, as we'll see, and then Judah does something different in the second half of the story that does push the story forward in an important way. So we're going to look at before Judah, after Judah, and what changed uh, Judah. So let's jump to the before. Uh, so this is Genesis chapter 37, and this is the part of the story we've heard Joseph goes off after his brothers. Uh, they see him in the distance, and before he reaches them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, Come now, let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes. So one brother, Reuben, heard this, and he tried to rescue him from the hands, says, No, don't, don't take his life. Don't shed any blood. Um, Throw him into the cistern, but don't lay a hand on him. So Reuben is trying to de-escalate this out of control. Um, it's, it's the mob scene inside of a family. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to 
verse 26, where Judah comes up. So I think that's pro, uh, 26. Here we go. Judah said to his brothers, so Judah is the nice guy. Uh, I'm being facetious. He said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let's think about this. What are we doing here? Let's him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our own brother. Like, what a nice guy Judah seems to be. He's our own brother, our own flesh and blood. So let's just sell him into slavery. Uh, in the Reuben comes back to the cistern after, discovers that Joseph was not there, tore his clothes, uh, went back to his brothers, and, set, and, and so Reuben's upset. So they actually go through with this little charade where they pretend that he was killed by an animal, and, and they uh, take that story to Jacob. So that's Judah before, and I'm just going to say he doesn't seem like a nice guy to me. He seems like a bully. Um, he seems like he takes his position in, in the family and among his brothers. You know, he's, he's quoted here and others are not quoted. So I, I don't see Judah as being like heroic in any way. So then let's go like jump to the after part of the story. I'm skipping over all the, he's in slavery. He goes into Potiphar's house. He ends up in prison. Then he gets called into Pharaoh's uh, palace to interpret dreams. This is Joseph I'm talking about now. So now famine hits the land, the brothers come. Um, you know this part of the story. Uh, so I think we're going to go to uh, chapter 42. Yeah, here we go. So Joseph, this is their first time visiting, and, and jo this is Joseph saying to his brothers, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, if... You are honest men. Let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. So we know what's happening in the story. The brothers don't. So the brothers don't realize that this is Joseph. And if you use a, a kind of traditional moral compass, what would we say that Joseph is doing here? He's lying, yes. Yes, he's making up a story. Why is he lying? Say, to make them suffer. So there, there's a little bit of like he's kind of trying to get back at them, yeah? And he's testing them. He, he says, if you are honest men, so he's setting up a little drama, a little theatrical thing uh, to, to test them. And they're uh, understandably freaked out. They're scared. Um, he seems very intense uh, to them, and he's powerful. So th they go along with whatever he says. One of the brothers is left. And then uh, they go back home, and what they discover, uh, I'll jump down. Uh, you go next slide. Joseph gave orders, so this is uh, verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack. So they paid money to get the grain, and then he put the money back, just to mess with them. Yes? I mean, is there any other way of seeing that? So... 
He put each man's silver back in the sack to give them provisions for their journey. So he's providing for them at the same time that he's niggling them. After this was done, they loaded their grain on the donkeys. And then, of course, they discovered this. And they're like, what is happening? Uh, This is scary. So they go back. They tell the story uh, to dad. And I think we probably will jump ahead to the... um, I'm going to go to 37. Is that where we are? Almost. The next one after them. So this is now Jacob, uh, the father, saying... You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more because Simeon was the one that was held as a prisoner. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. So now Reuben, remember Reuben from earlier in the story, he was the one that's like, I'll go rescue him after. Uh, Reuben says to the father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. So we see that Reuben's character is pretty consistent that Reuben's in the middle of this kind of raucous band of brothers, and he's trying to do the right thing. Uh, And so they don't actually go yet. So they leave uh, Simeon's stuck in prison. It's like, good luck, Simeon. You know, we'll call. They just leave him there, um, and they don't go back yet. So now the story continues. Uh, I think it's the next, so this will bring us to Genesis 43. So now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt. So they made sure they ate all the food first before they went back. They said, uh, the father said, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. So Judah is, is explaining, we have to bring Benjamin. The reason why Joseph wants Benjamin is what? It's his, it's his brother by the same mother. So he has a closer relationship with Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest. And I think he wants just to see him for his own comfort, you know, and he, he misses him. Uh, so Israel, uh, Jacob is, is funny. Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling me the man who had another brother? It's a little whiny dad in this story. They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? And then Judah said to Israel, his father, and this is where we begin to see like, oh, something's happening with Judah. He's different. Send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. And then there's a little one-liner zinger at the end. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. So can we get out of here? Get on with this thing. So the the fun thing about the Bible is uh, the Bible just shows all of the dysfunction, like, you know, really out there in a very different way than than we, we tend to do. Uh, so you, the humanity of this family is, is very vivid and quite believable. It does not feel like a myth to me. 
This feels like real people. You know, it feels like, yeah, this, this is what this family's like. Uh, so now, moving, moving the story forward, they do go back uh, to Joseph. And we're going to jump ahead now into uh, 44. So there's a little game playing here. Um, they come, Joseph sees Benjamin, very happy to see him. And they, Joseph sends him on the way, but he puts his cup in Benjamin's sack. And then he sends them off, and then he sends somebody after to go and entrap them and catch them. And then Benjamin now has to be a prisoner to him because he's stolen his cup. And he's playing with the idea that it was his cup used for divination and that he can divine so he saw what was happening. Of course, he's planning the whole thing. He's doing the whole thing, but he's, he's playing with their, again, he's playing with their mind maybe a little out of revenge and a little bit out of seeing what are they going to do, uh, how, how are they going to be tested. So we now have the, the moment uh, when, when Judah is kind of telling the story again. I'm going to pick up uh, let's go to verse 27. Just one more after. Your servant, my father, yes, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. So here they're telling the story about what happened to Joseph to Joseph. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one, Benjamin, from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here. So he's He's saying, keep me, I'll stay. Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Uh, Skipping ahead a little bit, Joseph gets to the point where he can no longer control himself before his attendants. He cried out, have everyone leave my presence. I'm um, chapter 45. Yeah, we're right there. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. So arguably, in the story, what causes Joseph to feel like his brothers have passed the test. It's the change in Judah. He sees now Judah, who's like, sell him off. Now Judah is saying, I will go in his place. And it seems to me, I mean, Joseph might have done whatever he was going to do, but it seemed to me that that's the moment that he says, I think they're ready. (laughs) I think that they see what they need to see so that now I can reveal. So then, long way around, we go to back, back to chapter 38. 
So how did Judah get from that before bully to the after sacrificial, I'm, I'm setting myself out, and empathetic? Like Judah is saying, this is how my father is going to feel. Don't, so he, he not only is doing the right thing, he's also feeling the right thing. Which sometimes we don't, you know, those things don't coincide um, for us. In, in key moments. So what changed Judah? Well, it's chapter 38. And then this is why um, most of the children are not in today. This was supposed to be, you know, fifth Sunday, kids were going to be in. It's like, um, I don't think I can preach this sermon <laughs> with all the kids in the room, though I would have tried. Uh, we, I just would have winked a lot uh, uh, over you. Uh, so Judah has uh, a son. A son is betrothed to uh, this woman, Tamar. The son dies. And so then the next brother is going to take that responsibility. And he uh, does not want to do that, uh, is not happy about that. He dies as well. So there's a third younger boy who's not of age to marry. Uh, and, and that this is Judah's plan. So I'm going to go to verse 11 here. Yeah. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. That's what he said, and this is what he thought. He may die too, just like his brothers. So you see, inside Judah, he's not thinking, I have a responsibility to this woman. We've invited her into our home, and we're, we're going to make a way for this. He doesn't do that. He's thinking, you know, maybe we'll get out of the deal. So uh, we'll jump down to verse 13. When Tamar was told, so, so then Judah's heading her way. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So again, there's more uh, time that passes here. He's not fulfilled his promise. He's not done what he said he would do. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. So what's she doing? What, just, let's interpret this. What's going on for her? She's setting him up. Evidence. She's, she's setting up a situation where she will have proof of what's happened. And she's forward thinking because she kind of sees where this thing is playing out. And she makes allowance for it. Now, again, by, you know, our, our a moral compass... Is, it, is your moral compass upset by this? Is, this? is this kind of a proof text of like, this is how we should handle situations? No. And if you look at 
Tamar and you compare her to Joseph, they're both in a pretty similar situation. Except Tamar has absolutely no power and Joseph has all power. So we have somebody who's powerless and somebody with all power who are both needing to address something that's wrong. And they have deep feelings of betrayal and, and hurt through which they have to do that. So, in fact, he gives uh, his seal and his cord, uh, the seal and its cord, which is his identity. So she has proof of who, who, who was with her. Um, he does come back and send the go. So, you know, I don't know. If that's a, is that good? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to evaluate that. So um, he, he was not able to find her, and he went back to, uh, this servant went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. They said that there's no shrine prostitute there. So this is verse 3. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or, she, or we will become a laughing stock. Um, let's just cover it up. This is happening. It's been happening for decades, right? For millennia, like it's nothing new, and yet every time it happens, we're shocked. Let's just uh, protect our own reputation. Let's not become a laughing stock. Let's not get sued. After all, I did send her to go, you know. I paid, so I'm okay. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her uh, to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. This is sobering stuff. I'm, I'm shaking, not because I'm, I stand in front of people all the time and talk all the time, so that's not why I'm shaking. It's like, this is just really sobering stuff. And it feels very near. It does not feel like, oh, this is uncivilized people way back when. It just feels like this is how humans behave. This is what we do. So I'm assuming that very few of us in this room have acted in these ways. So, you know, let's bring it a little bit closer to to what it might be for us. One of them had difficulty hearing the truth, and one of them had difficulty speaking the truth. So Judah was not hearing the truth when she was just saying, I should be, you know, in the, in the household. He was not listening. So then the question for us is, are we listening? When people are speaking difficult truth to us, are we pausing and reflecting and saying, is there something... I haven't done or seen. Um, I have a situation in, uh, that's very personal to me and still unresolved. I'm, I am going to uh, take the risk of just sharing a few details. Uh, my father is 90 years old, and for the last three to four years, my father has cut off his entire family so he doesn't speak to his children or his grandchildren. And it, it was a process uh, that was connected to a relationship that he started after uh, my mom passed. 
Um, and I have been trying to figure out what do I do? How do I respond to this? Um, I don't feel good about the fact that I'm not talking to my father and that my father's not talking to me and that he's not talking to his, my, you know, my sons. Um, and so uh, in, in March, I went and I visited, I know where he lives, he lives in a, in a retirement community, and I visited there and I brought Italian pastries, which is just like so pitiful, but it's just like this was what God put in my heart. Um, so there's, I, I deliver, I go to the place, I ring his bell, there he's answering the phone, and it's him, and I don't say, this is your son, and I've come to see you, will you see me? I say, I have a delivery for you. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, okay, you know, I have to get changed, I'll be right down. And then he doesn't come down, and he doesn't come down, and he doesn't come down. So then I call the front desk on this little phone, I'm on, on the outside of a locked door, and she said, you need to leave the, leave the premises right now. He's not taking the delivery. And the way she said it, I thought, oh, he figured out who it was. And, uh, and so I went to my car, and a security truck followed me off the premises. And I thought, wow, wow, you know, where do we go with that? It would be very easy for me, because I've done it several times over the last few years, to just write, write it off, to end the story and to go, okay, I'm done, I'm done. But I feel like I still come back to the Lord and go, do I need to try in another way? Father's Day is coming up. Is there something else I can do? And at the same time, I'm aware that I can't really go after him because he'll call the police, right? So it's, it's not like I can just do whatever. So I'm working... In, an, in a non-ideal situation, there's no rule book that says, this is how you should do this, this is how you should win him over. And I feel like that is kind of the situation that many of us are in when we're in that truth-telling position, when we're trying to confront somebody. There's no right way to do this. And we're aware, like Tamar and Joseph, that we're maybe all worked up. We may have lost all sub, uh, objectivity, we may be very bitter. There may be some revenge in those Italian pastries that I was, <laughs> I was like. I did deliver them to his girlfriend's uh, doorstep. And I left him there. And who knows? I, like I assumed that he was aware that, and I put a little note, happy 90th birthday. And I, only, it's sweet that I left them. The reason I left them was because I would have binge eaten all six of them. <laughs> I would have been 20 minutes on, on 90, and I would have eaten all of them. So I said, i got to leave these, because it's, it's not going to be good for me. So are you in a situation where somebody's been trying to tell you something? And I, I could look at my father's situation and think, well, my father's been trying to tell us that he can't handle us. And so I, d I have reflected on, was I too pushy with him three or four years ago when, you know, when our, one of our uh, son's got engaged, and he didn't acknowledge it, and so, and I was angry. And did my anger, you know, push him away? I don't know. I'm still asking that question. Uh, so there are times when we, we, is there a truth that we're not failing to hear, or is there something that we need to speak, and if, is this not the moment? I remember a phrase from um, 
when I was studying uh, psychological research. And oftentimes when you're doing research, you want a lot, of, um, a lot of subjects so that you can have statistics that say, but there are situations that are N equals one, which means each situation is different. And I feel like, yes, we, we are in this place where it's N equals one. Whatever situation that you're in with the truth-telling and the truth-hearing is an N equals one. There isn't like, you know, a four-point thing that's going to tell you what to do. You need to listen to the Spirit, and you won't know if you've heard the Spirit until you get to the end of the story. So let's just jump to the end of the story here. Uh, it's to reiterate things we've already read, but it's so in- encouraging. So this is chapter 50. Yes. So this is after uh, Jacob has died. Um, the brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, what if Joseph, hol- Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. We don't know if this is a lie too. We have no idea. But it sounds plausible. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. So for a dream that was so long in coming, Joseph got to see this dream happen multiple times in front of him. And every time it happened, he cried. Which is not how we think that our God dreams are going to be Filled. We don't think that, oh, I'm going to be weeping when God brings it, boom, you know, when, when the last piece drops in. And here, because Joseph's done the work in his heart, has said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is the story that we're in. There is a story in our lives that we want to be attending to, is how is God bringing all of the things that have either been done to us or that we have done, um, some things that were actually intended for harm. It's not just that we misunderstood. No, it's like, no, there there were things that were intended uh, to harm us that happened. And and to, to... lean into God's intention in seeing God's intention um, manifest. And we have to open up the chapter 38. So, you know, we have to open up all the places that we're inclined to maybe like, oh, I don't want to talk about that, or that one's too painful, or I don't want to go there. It's like, that's where God is at work. And so let's open up those spaces and say, God, what are you doing? And let's keep moving forward until we see the the landing of the story in redemption, because this is the story. And that's kind of what these songs that we're singing, that's what they're saying, that we're meant to live this out over decades. This is a reality. So I would like to take a moment uh, to, to pray for us and invite the worship team to come on up. Uh, I guess I want to invite, stay where you are for a moment. Worship team, come up, but everybody else stay where you are for a moment. I want to invite you um, 
to stand where you are in a moment. I'll just give a couple of, there may just be a way that you feel like, yeah, I'm in that truth hearing place or I'm in that truth telling. It's obvious to me this is touching that thing. And if that's the case, uh, go ahead and stand. But it also might be that you're just carrying the weight of the week. You're carrying the weight of the month. You're carrying the weight of this year. And it's, and it's getting to you. And, and you need to know that God is going to work something for good. And you, you're not in the place of any confidence whatsoever. Uh, but you need maybe people around you to support you and hold you up. So if, if either of those categories uh, are true for you, if you could stand up. I'm going to pray for everybody. But for those who really want to say, yeah, this is really hitting home for me. Yeah, so go ahead and stand if that applies to you. And I just want to pray for uh, those individuals. Thank you, God, for uh, the Bible. And thank you that the Bible has messy, uh, complicated human behavior in it. And thank you that we have this testimony of generations of you being able to work um, through really dark things and, and really hopeless situations. And so we put ourselves, Lord, in this book. We are in, we are in your genealogy because your spirit is in us. So we could put our names in the list of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah because your, your seed was in us, right? You, you put your spirit in us, and you mean for us to actually... Uh, propagate you in, in the world. And so we count ourselves, we count all of our messy stories. We're in, the, in company with Judah and, and Tamar and Joseph and the other brothers. And Lord, we need uh, a, greater, uh, a greater level of ability to bear burden. Uh, so I pray, Lord, for those right now who are bearing burden that is just too much for them and they know it's too much for them. We hold up their arms. Lord, I pray uh, where we are discerning what the truth is through the lens of betrayal and bitterness, where we have deep grief while we're trying to figure out what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to say? Or we're trying to work out a, a... relationship and that relationship is not going forward and we are at an impasse we're stuck and we're tempted to just write it off and say I guess this one is just not going to work out we invite you Lord into those unfinished stories and give us a vision of hope There's, a, there's that place of, we talked about this this morning before Christopher preached, there's a place of us hearing from the Lord oftentimes of, God, what is it that you're trying to say to me? And there's something that we're trying to tell. So there's this vertical thing that's going on. 
Oftentimes, God uses people in our lives and circumstances to be that place of listening and hearing. And so it might be that in the room, as you, those of you who have stood or haven't stood, there is that tension that you're needing help on. God, help give me courage to listen. Give me courage to speak. The other thing that we recognize as we were talking is that oftentimes we're in both of those places. We have things that we're blinded to that God's revealing, and we have things that we know we need to say or do. So that might be some of us are in both places. And then the other category that we talked about that Christopher hasn't touched on is that in this story, Tamar and Joseph, in the earlier parts of his story, both were in a place where they um, were wronged and looking for hope, but they were in the tension of longing for something that was not happening for years. So that place of of waiting in the the tension of unfulfilled promise, maybe even the the place of unfulfilled partnership or or, 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 um, comfort from God, or at least not feeling it. We were talking this morning, this has been a crazy week on the national front, and it's just adding to a narrative that for some of us in the room is very emotional. God, where in the world, what's happening in this world? And so there's that overarching thing that some of us are feeling as well, like, God, there is something incredibly wrong in this world. When are you going to do something? So that place of waiting. And so we recognize that there's even some grief and some struggle that some people are carrying emotionally just in the, the larger tragic story. So we, we felt like that this might be a moment for us to turn to people around us and pray. It might be sharing the first part of I need to figure out how to speak or to hear. It might be, will you weep with me? I'm really going through something. This is really impacting me. Maybe personally, like Christopher's story, but maybe it's globally and you're emotionally impacted by these stories. So we're going to give some space. We're not going to going to ask you to come forward. We're going to ask you to turn upward and outward to the people around you. Confess, pray, whatever you need to do. Sit with each other. We're just going to do that. Is that is that all making sense? Can I just get a nod like, yeah, that, that makes sense? So the worship team is going to start leading the worship and we're just going to trust that you're going to start turning. You don't have to do this. If you want to sit by yourself and just be present with the Lord, that's fine too. Just, we're going to give you space to respond how God's leading you. So we'll do that for a few minutes.